a theologian, an American theologian from the 60s and 70s, Elvis Presley, had many things to say about life. I wouldn't advise you to follow his theology at all, but there was a statement he made, and it's the following line. He said this, when things go wrong, don't go with them. And I don't know exactly what he meant by that statement, but it's actually a pretty good statement. When things go wrong, don't go with them. Don't get tied up to your circumstances or your fears and go with them. I could hear a grandpa-like figure sitting down with his grandson or granddaughter saying, I have some advice for you in life. When life gets challenging and tough and when things seem like they're out of control, don't let your mind, your emotions, your faith go with those things. It breeds an attitude of defeat. All right, but the reality is that things do go wrong. And from a Christian perspective, we should ask the question, what keeps a Christian from being defeated and going down with his or her circumstances? This is what's important. It's a reality for Christians that we're not people who are determined by our circumstances. Our hearts aren't tied to our circumstances. Instead, we have hope. Hope is central to our faith. And hope is central to our faith because God has made wonderful promises to us that the circumstances we find ourselves in The hurts that we've experienced in the past are not the last chapter in our lives. There's more to come. For centuries before Christ came, the promises were a Savior is coming. And God's people were to continually look forward to the Savior who is coming. We live after the Savior's first coming. And we have been given promises still that the Savior is coming once again. And we have to live in this time in between the two comings of Jesus with the hope that he will come and that the promises that God has made that Jesus will enact in our lives as we were reading earlier in Micah and as we'll read here in Isaiah, the promises of God that evil and sin will be put away and that all things will be made new are promises that we have to hold to and hope in this morning, even when things go wrong. So in Isaiah 11, we're jumping into a story in which the people of Jerusalem are terrified and they feel hopeless. Things are going wrong. The Assyrian army, the major empire of the day, was a ruthless machine that marched from north to south through the northern kingdom of Israel and was destroying everything in its path. They were a ruthless enemy. Uh, Historians say that they were known for stacking up pyramids or mounds of skulls after they had defeated a city as a message to the next city of saying, here's what's coming. Now they're approaching Jerusalem. King Ahaz is sitting on his throne in Jerusalem. And yet there are people, even though Ahaz was not a great king, there are people in Jerusalem who are believers. They're saints. And they can see that things are going wrong. And yet God did did not want his people to be hopeless. He wanted them to be people of hope. 
And so God gives them hope in Isaiah 11. He gives them promises that a Savior would come. A Savior would make everything right. And these promises are for us today as well. Now, what's true about Isaiah 11 is that there are promises that are made that have near fulfillments and far fulfillments. This is a huge aspect of study in the Bible when you're studying Old Testament passages, how to look at the Old Testament promises. And most would agree that those New Testament promises are promises that are poured out in fulfillment and will eventually be completely and fully poured out in the coming of Jesus. And that's how I take Isaiah 11 this morning, that we can still look at Isaiah and say, yes, there was a near fulfillment of promises and there will be a future fulfillment of these promises as well. The promise that we see in Isaiah 11 is that a Savior would come. 1 Peter 1 verse 13 says this, that we are to be preparing our minds for action right now, being sober-minded, and how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to prepare our minds and be sober-minded? Peter says, set your hope fully. Set your hope fully, not partially. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation or the coming of Jesus Christ. Here's the hope. Jesus is coming and there's going to be grace. There's going to be kindness and goodness that comes to God's people when Jesus comes. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says this, that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We are a people who waits for the coming Savior. And we're going to call this, as Peter and as Paul did, we're calling this hope. We have a hope in the future coming of Jesus Christ. What is hope? Hope is the confident expectation that we live by. That's what hope is, a confident expectation. So very just practically, you think about a wedding scenario that takes place. And at the beginning of the wedding, the pastor the groom and the groomsmen typically come up to the front, I'll say, of the auditorium here. The bride and the bridesmaids are not here. And so this groom, who may not have seen his bride all day, now is standing up at the front of this auditorium with great excitement in his heart. He has this confident expectation based on what he knows about his bride this confident expectation that soon the doors are going to open up in the back and he's going to see his bride. His bride is going to come down. That's his hope. It's not a wishful thinking. It's, I know this woman. She has communicated truth to me. We have a relationship with one another. I can't see her now, but the door is going to open up and we're going to be together. It's like us and Christ. Now, things get switched up a little bit in the illustration because we're the bride and he's the groom. But nonetheless, you understand there's that aspect of hope that we know Christ, we're in relationship with him, and he is coming for us. So we set our hope in the midst of our circumstances fully on Jesus. So Isaiah 11 helps us see that. And there are three points to the sermon this morning that we'll see. We're going to see that Jesus is the coming king. Jesus is the saving king, and Jesus is the unifying king. 
we have a king who's coming who's going to make all things right for us. Okay, so Jesus, the coming king, verses 1 through 9. First off, Jesus is a king who's promised here in verse 1. Isaiah, speaking, you know, on behalf of God, says in verse 1, uses a very interesting image here. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Um, One thing you know about stumps is they basically represent a has-been. There was once a tree that was there with life, and yet it was cut down, and now there's no more life. I have a fence line that I share with the neighbor, and on that fence line, we have had the unfortunate experience of mulberry trees. Those things do not die. And every year, I have to come back and cut that thing down, cut those branches down. Somehow, I caused one stump to die, and it's almost... It's got a deadness to it, a blackness to it, and the bark is starting to peel away. Those other stinking mulberry stumps, they send up the shoots every year, and twice a year I've got to cut those things down. In verse 1, you see a stump in your mind. It's old. It's dead. It represents something that once was. And the once was representation is the line of kings. Through David... There was a line of kings, and this line of kings represented or had a promise that a future king was coming. God had told David in 2 Samuel 7, there is going to be a king who comes from your line, and he will rule and reign on your throne forever. And yet, this stump is there. Now, notice the name of the stump. It's the stump of whom? The stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And here you see just this stump that's out in the middle. But now, out of this dead stump, and in Israel's history, the kings had been cut off for centuries. No one was sitting on Israel's throne anymore. Isaiah says, there's going to be a shoot that comes up from this stump. There's going to be a green sprout, and you're going to see life that comes from it. Who's this going to be? It's going to be Jesus himself. He is going to be the fulfillment. He is going to be the king that comes from David's line and rules and reigns over his people. And in his first coming, in Matthew's account, we see that the angel tells Mary, hey, the son of David, he is going to sit on the throne of his father, David. He is coming. In this passage, we're told that Jesus is coming. Notice the character of this king in verses 2 through 5. It says that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. You remember in Jesus' baptism, the spirit descended upon him like a dove, and then the spirit led him into the wilderness. The spirit was guiding him, and here Isaiah says that he's a spirit of wisdom and understanding, meaning that Jesus, as king, will be wiser than anyone he faces and will have an understanding in order to make decisions. He's also, in verse 2, called the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might there. So 
the Spirit will rest on Jesus and Jesus will have counsel, the counsel of God. And not only will he have the counsel that comes from God, but he will also have the power and might to be able to carry out that counsel without being hindered or thwarted. Also, we see that the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord is going to rest upon Jesus. Jesus will be a leader who reveres God more than man. He's not going to be swayed by donors. He's not going to be pulled aside by lucrative deals. He will always make decisions that please his heavenly Father. And then he also says that he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. What does that mean? He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Leaders today can only make decisions based on what they see, the evidence of things that they see. That's why it's called in an inquiry going on Capitol Hill. We have to inquire about what we can hear and what we can see. It's kind of like a parent who walks into a room and sees Sally uh, just shove Junior. All right, Sally, you shouldn't have shoved Junior there. You get the punishment. Well, what you don't know is before you walked into the room, Junior was pulling Sally's hair. You didn't see it. You didn't hear it. You need that information. And the point here is that Jesus is going to be able to come and have complete knowledge of all things. In verses 4 and 5, it goes on to say, With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Notice his victory here. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Just with his word he will be able to pronounce judgment, and those who are wicked will be done. Verses 6 through 9. He's a king who provides peace. A king who provides peace. Now, as I read through this picture of peace, notice how creation is recreated or rewired when Jesus comes back. Look at verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Now, what do you notice in that passage? Do you notice the pairing that is taking place? You would look at this, and if you were attending the John Ball Zoo and saw the lion exhibit and then saw a gate open, and in walks a calf, most of us would start to wince and say, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to see this. Some of you are the crazy type where you get closer to it, and you say, I can't wait to see what's going to happen here. This is going to be awesome here. You see these pairings in these verses where the lion is with the calf, the, the cow is with the bear, the leopard is with the young goat. The wolf right there is with the lamb. And these two don't have peace with one another. Normally, the other one is devouring the other. There's death that's taking place. And then it moves forward from the animal kingdom. You see a child here in this passage. And the child here, this nursing baby here, 
is playing over the hole of a cobra. And if you were to see that happening, your adrenaline would kick in and you'd be moving quickly towards that baby to swoop it up in your arms so that death would not come to that baby. Or the child that reaches his or her hand into the snake's nest, the snake's den. And you're thinking, no, don't do that. You're going to be harmed. And what God is showing us here is that all of those worries and concerns about conflict, about pain, about hurt, and about death are now erased. None of that is going to be happening. The hurts, the pains, the conflicts that people are experiencing with their circumstances right now are going to come to an end. Now, don't get lost in this passage. By that, I mean, years ago, I was reading through the book of Isaiah, and I get to passages like this, and I start asking the question, when is this going to happen? So I got on my email, and I send an email to one of my professors from seminary, and I say, Prof, I'm struggling as I'm going through Isaiah because I'm reading about all of these things that, that are, are projected into the future, and when are they going to take place? Are they going to take place, you know, in Revelation 20? Are they going to take place in Revelation 21 or 22? And he shot back this email, and at first it felt a little insulting. My question is, when was it going to take place? And he said, Nate, you're asking the wrong question. I'm like, well, what's the question that I'm supposed to ask? You're asking the question about when. That's not the question that this text is answering. The answer is pertaining to the question of who. When we come to this, if your immediate mindset is, yeah, I can't wait for this to come because I've got it on my chart and my timeline, you're missing the moment here. This is not about the when. This is about when Jesus comes back. Jesus is going to make all conflict and all death go away and be gone. And so what he's doing is he's latching our hope not to a time frame in history, although you can study that out. Don't get me wrong. He's latching your hope to a king who's coming, a king who will bring perfect peace to his people, a king who will take what is fearful and what is driving people apart, and he's going to say, no, all of creation now is going to be able to experience peace. Let me go to those things that you would never think could experience peace. We're going to put a a cow and a bear right next to each other. There's going to be peace. We're going to put a wolf and a lamb. There's going to be peace. We're going to put a child over the cobra's den. There's going to be peace. And what Isaiah is saying is there's going to be a totally new reality here when Jesus comes back. Look at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. No more destruction will take place. Now look. All of us have hurts. All of us have pains. All of us, to go back to the beginning, have things that have gone wrong in life. And they go with you. They go with you. And Jesus is saying to his people, keep looking forward Latch your hope to the reality that I'm going to come back. And God was telling the people in Jerusalem, keep looking forward. I'm going to send you a king who will be your savior. 
And so for us today, we're looking at these verses on the front and say, a king is coming. We're not trapped by our circumstances. We don't have to go down with our circumstances. This will not be the last chapter. So how is it going to be different? Look at the second part of verse 9. second part of verse 9 says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters that cover the sea. This is a global picture here of complete renewal here. The earth is going to be filled up to the top. So think about Lake Michigan right now and how the water comes right up to the shore. Now, if you were to go out into a boat and go to the middle of Lake Michigan, you go deep down and there's, there's ground underneath, there's sand underneath, and yet there's all this water that fills up this big hole in the earth right here. A massive amount of water that covers all of that space here. And what Jesus is saying is, if you, could, if you could picture the whole earth now, now, picture that earth as being completely covered. What's it going to be covered with? The knowledge of the Lord. One author says this, As it is in the existing order of the world, few, few people fear God. Still, fewer know him as he should be known. But in that new earth, the knowledge of Jehovah shall flow far and wide. And that's the point. In this era, in this kingdom that's coming, all people will not just know about God. They will be dominated by knowing and being in relationship with him. There's going to be a complete renewal. There will be complete peace because our lives will be characterized by a deep relationship. And therefore, all of creation, Romans 8, you remember all of creation groans. All of creation, animals and humans, will be living together in peace with no effects of sin and troubles and fears, just as God has originally created us. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the weight and the pain and the hurt that you're feeling in life, and you do have to put it on the scale because it's real. And yet what you do is, God says, now, take the hope that Jesus is coming and put it on the other end of the scale, and this is how you can go forward in life. It won't always be this way. Jesus will be, bring complete peace, and so we look forward with hope to the time that Jesus is going to come and rule and reign as our on-earth king. Now, verses 10 and following. Point number two, Jesus is the saving king. Jesus is the saving king. Now, notice what Isaiah says here in verse 10. The language changes in verse 10. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse. Earlier in verse 1, he was called the shoot. But now he's called the root. So we go from the top of the stump where something has sprung up, a shoot has sprung up. Now we go beneath the stump. And we're called, he's called the root of Jesse. And how is it that this king can be called the root of Jesse? What Isaiah is bringing out here is that there is a special quality, a special characteristic about this king who exists after Jesse, and yet he exists before Jesse, simply talking about the divine nature of Jesus. He has been for eternity in the past, and he will come and be eternity in the future, eternally in the future. 
this phrase is mentioned a couple of times in the, in the Bible, and I just want to bring it to your attention from Romans 15, verses 11 and 12, where Paul brings this up and he says, And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse, the one who existed before him, will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope. And then Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus says this of himself, I am the root, I came before, and I am the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Jesus existed before David, and Jesus came, incarnated, became the the descendant of David in his birth. That makes him God. This is pointing to his divine nature. And what is he able to do then in his divine nature? Look at verse 11. Or I'm sorry, still verse 10. It says that he will stand as a signal for the people. What does he mean here as a signal for the people? Think of it this way. If you're out on Lake Michigan on a stormy night and you're looking for the harbor to come in, you need that lighthouse. You need that signal to welcome you in. The signal in this time was like a banner or flag that could be flown high and said, okay, it's safe to come into this city. It's safe to come into this place here. And yet you see in verse 10 that the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal. Jesus is the signal saying, come to me, there's safety here. John 12, verse 32, speaking of a signal that was lifted up, Jesus said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. The cross becomes the signal. The cross is the place of safety, folks. That's where the forgiveness of sins and the judgment of God is settled there for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, I just want you to know, Jesus is the signal. He is the place of safety And he welcomes you to himself for that forgiveness of sin. Now, in this picture here, it says that the nations are going to come and inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Again, it's this picture of peace. It's this picture of comfort here. Isaiah takes us into verse 11. He says, In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. And notice where his people are coming from. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. And so here are a group of people who have been scattered all over the world. God's people have been scattered all over the world. And he's just going to Come and he's going to gather them. How? Simply by his hand, by the power of his hand. Here, come to me. Come to me. Nothing will thwart his purposes at all. Jesus is going to gather his people. Thirdly, verse 13, Jesus is going to be the unifying king. Look at verse 13. He says this, that Ephraim or the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. All right, so in Israel's history, you had the northern kingdom and you had the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was typically called Israel, 
Sometimes it was called Ephraim. Here it's called Ephraim. And the reason why it's called Ephraim is because Ephraim was the largest tribe in the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was called Judah. They had something like a civil war a couple hundred years earlier. And so Israel was split into this northern kingdom of Ephraim and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the two really didn't like each other, even though they descended from Abraham. They had their conflicts, and at times they went to war with one another. And so here you have God's people who have this wedge that's driven right down in between them. And God says, I want you to know that in the future, I am going to bring Ephraim and Judah together. There's going to be a unity that takes place. In God's kingdom, there will be perfect unity among God's people. There will be no more fighting there will be no more conflict. Those who have been separated either because of sin or because of the effects of sin or because of differences of opinion or because of jealousy are going to be fully restored. And this can only take place because Jesus is coming. So this, this then motivates us if that's going to be the reality then in the future, and we're experiencing the tensions now that drive people apart, according to verse 13 here, what God is saying is, hold on to hope. Hold on to hope that it's not always going to be this way. There's going to be a unity that happens. And I think, how many times have we as Christians seen fractures and schisms, divorces, Parents separated from children, children running from parents, taking place in the body of Christ because of sin and the effects of sin. You feel that. And the pain of that goes with you. And Isaiah says, someday we are going to be completely united. Take the reality of what you're experiencing right now and yet balance it out with the hope that it won't always be this way because Jesus is coming. Not only that within relationships, but we know that on a larger scale, there's not going to be any more debates. There's not going to be any more caucuses. There's not going to be any more divisions. There won't be two parties or three party systems because there will be one party. All will be devoted to Jesus and faithfully following him. Do you see how this gives hope for us? See, we don't go down with our circumstances because we have hope in a coming king. We feel the circumstances. We feel the burdens. At times, we even, we even follow them down. We sin or we have to walk through the sin of others. There are times when Things go awry, and we go with them, and we feel hopeless. It seems as though this is the way it will always be. And what Isaiah 11 is saying is, no, no, a king is coming. So the Christmas season is not only a time for us to look backwards. Just as the saints in Isaiah's day had to look forward, so we must also look forward. We have a Savior we have a king. He's, his name is Jesus. He's a coming king. He's a divine king. He's going to be a unifying king. 
the disagreements, the divisions that are known and felt among Christians today will one day be a part of the past and forgotten. And you can have hope in the times of painful divisions. I think far too many people right now are living life as though there is no hope. Christians, we have hope. And you have a message of hope for those who are around you. There's a hopelessness that things will never be great, and yet Isaiah 11 is saying, yes, they will, because God will create all things new. So let's go into this week. Let's have the expectation that Jesus is coming. Let's take our eyes and place them on him, even as we walk through the current circumstances. Even when things go wrong, we're not going to go down with them because Jesus is coming. We're going to set our hope on him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your promises that are for us. And we ask that you would help us to hold to them in faith this week. We pray that the circumstances that we find ourselves in, that we see around us, read about, the circumstances that have caused grief, I just pray that you would help us to have a settled hope, a confident expectation that while we face the challenges in front of us right now, Jesus is coming and all things will be made new. Just with your heads bowed, can you talk to the Lord in the quietness of your own heart?